that's the system that we have in this country is everything operates within a parliament. It's one of the last parliaments in the world and the reason for that is because the UK managed to find a way of making it work. If we can have three times installed capacity of wind, then almost certainly we'll be able to maintain the country in electricity without actually needing storage so much. And that, uh, I think, is a great idea. The pipeline is huge and hopefully it will all get built so it can actually be a genuine energy exporter to the rest of Europe. If you're an island nation with loads of windy seas around you, they need to be made use of. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Hey guys, this is Steve from Macro and Cheese. This week's podcast was recorded exactly one week before Liz Truss resigned. The good news, this podcast is solid. Neil Wilson takes us on an MMT journey from the UK, worthy of all your time. So please don't let Trussonomics get in the way of enjoying this week's excellent podcast. I want the truth. the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. We're going across the pond today. I'm going to talk to a person who I once saw on social media. He is none other than Neil Wilson, and Neil is an expert in finance and information systems. He is also an associate member of the Gower Initiative yeah. for Modern Money Studies in London, a co-author of an accounting model of the UK Exchequer, and a co-editor and contributor to the forthcoming book, Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights, Leading Thinkers. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guest, Neil Wilson. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Or is it afternoon of where you are at the moment? <laughs> we can call it good evening. I'm not really big on U.S. exceptionalism, so we'll go with the time frame. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very dark here. The sun has set. We're very far into the north of the latitudes, and winter is coming in more senses than one. Well, I think we're five hours apart, so it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's not too bad, although it is Friday. I should be in the pub by now. <laughs> Let me ask you about your current state of affairs. We in the United States got to live the Ronald Reagan experience, and we're still in many ways living with the massive culture shift that occurred under the Reagan revolution even today. In fact, it's no longer the right-wing Reagan revolution. Both political parties in the United States have embraced this neoliberal construct it has had some very negative effects, I believe, on my country. And looking around the world, it has probably caused more damage than just about any other belief system or political or economic system ever. Mm -hmm. And we're struggling with trying to put a name to it. People don't like the word neoliberalism. But at the end of the day, it's about mass privatization and austerity. It's about a public position for austerity, I think, in many ways. And Margaret Thatcher said that there is no such thing as public money, only taxpayer money. There is no alternative. 
we've been living with this false reality for a very long time. And it's in that framing, that lack of awareness that most have that modern monetary theory exposes quite clearly is false. Nearly every premise Thatcher and Reagan put forward is largely a construct of this ideological framework, not reality. And you are now bringing in a lady that looks remarkably <laughs> like Margaret Thatcher. Well, I, wouldn't, <laughs> and, I wouldn't say we're bringing them in. She was elected by 0.2% of the population, the Conservative Party membership, who obviously fancied a Margaret Thatcher cosplay. And <laughs> so that's what they've got. <laughs> well, I know in the United States, we have a very different system of government. We have the president, we have a Congress, and then we have a Senate. And that Congress typically is focused on the purse strings and writing bills. And then the Senate is there to ensure that no populism makes it through the door. It's the superdelegates of the world to prevent progressive legislation from getting through. At least that's the joke anyway in our circles. <laughs> What's it like in the UK? I know you have a very different yeah. structure with Parliament. How does that work? I'll try and give you an overview. The way the United Kingdom works is a constitutional monarchy, which we've just changed. We now have a king, since the Queen sadly died a month ago. The king has absolute power in the UK. All power rests in the king. Nothing happens unless he says so. However, he's not allowed to use any of it, because we have Parliament. And the parliament has to pass legislation that the king then assents to. So that's the system that we have in this country is everything operates within a parliament. It's one of the last parliaments in the world. And the reason for that is because the UK managed to find a way of making it work. In our system, we have five-year parliaments. And the basic fundamental rule is that no parliament can bind a successor. So any parliament does something, the next parliament can undo it, no matter what it is. And that's our system. Within that system, we elect MPs. There are 650 within the House of Commons. And one of those MPs is then selected as being the prime minister. And they are the prime minister because they have what's known as the confidence of the house. In other words, they could survive a vote of confidence and get more MPs than anybody else. And so when the election happened last, which was in December 2019, if memory serves, we got the bon viveur Boris Johnson elected as prime minister. And the Tory party, who are the majority party in the country, threw him out this year and decided they fancied a change. But they couldn't agree on a single replacement. They ended up with two. When that happens, it goes back to the Tory party membership, about 300,000 people who then selected the veritable Liz Trust, who, as far as I can say, is only talent, is avoiding getting sacked. So <laughs> <laughs> She's a terrible orator. She doesn't appear to have much of a plan and just seems to be the not Rishi Sunak candidate, as far as I can tell. So anyway, she is now the prime minister. So much so that after she got appointed prime minister, the queen decided to die. That's how bad it was. <laughs> I think it's only a vicious rumour that it was directly connected. <laughs> There's a newspaper home here, a tabloid newspaper, that set up a YouTube channel, a live YouTube channel, which has got a photograph of Liz Truss on the left and then an iceberg lettuce on the right. The general gist is they want to see which is going to last longest. 
is that Letcher's going to rot away or is Liz Truss going to get sacked? So that's where we're at. <laughs> it doesn't sound very promising, but maybe it's a good thing, though, because if she gets sacked quickly. Well, let's talk about her. You just laid out what Parliament is, and yes. you've laid out the role of the king within the monarchy. Yeah, the, the crown, as it's technically termed, it doesn't matter whether it's a king or a queen, but yeah, the crown is the office, and obviously the king or the king and queen occupies that office. That's the technical term for it. But yes, we're ruled by the king in Parliament, and the prime minister effectively has all the authority, but none of the power. And the king has all the power and none of the authority. That's the split that keeps things sweet. <laughs> so tell me about Truss. The conversation came out where some were saying, maybe she's not so bad. She <laughs> sounds like she might have heard of modern monetary theory. And I think Stephanie Kelton put out a couple articles out of her Substack, The Lens, that said, in Truss we trust or something like that. And <laughs> What exactly is trussonomics? Well, as far as I can tell, she's a Hayekian, was a Hayekian at university. She's essentially a reformed monetarist. So she's sort of leans very heavily towards market monetarism. The policies that she put forward, or at least she did with what is now a previous chancellor, as soon as he got sacked this afternoon, Breaking news that. So yes, we've got a new chancellor as well now. That's the second one in inside a month and a half. So anyway, the previous chancellor was her best friend, so she just threw him under a bus. Oh. And he and her came up with the programme for government, which they wrote down in a book called Britannia Unchained. And it's basically Hayekian monetarism, as far as we can gather. So what the previous chancellor put forward, Quasi, he put forward the straightforward monetarist view, which is that monetary policy is the instrument by which inflation is controlled, and that is entirely within the remit of the central bank, the Bank of England. And what they do on the fiscal side then is they alter tax policy to try and stimulate investment and remove as much regulation and red tape as possible to allow businesses to invest. So that was their basic philosophy. The problem is, and this is important from an MMT point of view, she didn't do the groundwork with the members of parliament, the people in the legislature, and they've refused to support it. So this goes back to the central MMT point, that government and the spending that government can undertake is controlled by the legislature and the people who are within parliament. So our parliamentarians wouldn't wear it, and they've required the Prime Minister to replace her Chancellor with a new guy who's called Jeremy Hunt, who used to be our Health Minister and was completely useless at that, so I haven't got high hopes for him in this job either. <laughs> well, so in the UK, you had wonderful public services, robust National Health Service, many citizens' benefits, things that people in the United States could only dream about. And little by little, the U.S. neoliberal experience, we often say it's our number one export. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I know, I feel horrible. I need to be Ed Snowden so I can tell the truth on all these people. And <laughs> hopefully you guys will take me in in the U.K. when I lose my citizenship. 
Yeah, well, that's the thing about it. You see, once you're on these islands, you are treated by the NHS. That's the great benefit of it is that we don't differentiate between citizens and anybody else. If you're here, you're here legally, then you are treated by the NHS. It is quite remarkable construction and certainly something that needs to be preserved. Is it going to be preserved, though? All that I see and hear is attack after attack on the NHS mm. and the intent to privatize. Well, it's kind of interesting is the NHS is already 50% privatized because all the general practitioners, the GPs, the what you would call the medical doctors, are all private and always have been private within the NHS. Generally, they have a contract with the NHS to provide services, but they are private. So the NHS has always been a private-public partnership, but it's always been based around the premise that healthcare is based upon the need, not ability to pay. That's the central premise of the NHS. And for 75 years now, the private and the public together have provided around that central theme. And it's actually the central theme that's being attacked, this idea that it's based upon need, not ability to pay. That's the thing that's under attack. It's not necessarily private public. It's the underlying philosophy that people who have money should be able to jump the queue. And as we found out when everybody was queuing to see the Queen laying in rest the other week, people in the UK really don't like people who jump the queue. And we don't like fast tracks at theme parks either. We find those a little bit uncouth, that people <laughs> should be able to jump the queue just by paying a bit extra. It's not seemly. And it's that that's under attack. This idea that we're all the same within the UK and you just get in line and you get seen by a doctor when your case is the most important one to see. That's the problem. This is class war. Yeah. What is class like in the UK? <laughs> to have an upper class connotates you probably have a lower class. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be talking about it in terms of upper and lower. Yeah. What is class like in the UK? Classes is very stratified in the UK. We have a working class. Other the people that actually do useful things. We definitely have a professional middle class who think they know what's best for everybody else and generally the working class laugh at them. And then we have a genuine upper class who are extremely wealthy people. And generally, they're rather nice. It's usually the upper middle class who are the pains in the backside. They're the ones that think they're better than what they are. It's a strange structure. The existing government we've got at the moment was elected by a strange coalition between those at the very top of society and those at the very bottom. Um, it was a peculiar mismatch against the people in the middle who were very much fond of nannyism and globalism and generally telling people what to do. The working class don't like to be told what to do. They just want to be left alone. They want things to work. They want the bins to be emptied. They want to be able to get to a doctor when they see it and they grumble. <laughs> and they just don't like being nannied, I don't think. I come from a working class background, so I consider those to be my people. And they don't like being nannied. It's centuries old. As far as I can tell, it's still the same split between the Normans and the Saxons <laughs> that first came about after the Norman conquest in 1066. There's a wonderful poem by Rudyard Kipling about the Normans and the Saxons, which when you actually read that, it still rings true today. The Saxons do grumble, and when they grumble, you need to leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did a great course not too long ago on that period of time, stemming off of some of the Dark Ages. And it's quite fascinating the further you go back as you get towards the dissolution of the Roman Empire and see how things constituted themselves. 
the great British empire was massive. And there was a meme that went around that said, freedom from British rule is the single largest celebrated holiday in the world. <laughs> you had the largest empire. Yes, that's it. Yeah. When did that come to an end? The end of the empire. This is a lesson for Americans from an ex-imperialist to the current imperialist. <laughs> the empire came to an end during the Edwardian period of the early 20th century with the Great War, the First World War. In the First World War, the British used up the entire fortune it had amassed over the Victorian period and destroyed the fundamental operation of the country. And we've been in decline ever since then. And as a British person who understands that, when I watch the way the Americans are behaving at the moment, I think, hmm, they're going through their Edwardian period. <laughs> so yes, it's been remarkable because the British Empire has dissolved without too much bloodshed. And the nations that were under the British Empire have been permitted to go independent and in, in quite a lot of cases assisted to go independent. There has been some fighting, obviously Ireland being the case in point, split in two as a result of the war a century ago. And that still is not 100%, well, it's not even 80% resolved. That's still an ongoing saw within the British Isles. So yes, we did have the reserve currency. We did rule. The sun never set on the British Empire and it's all gone. We're now left with the rump of the British Empire within the United Kingdom and the second most held currency after the dollar, as far as I'm aware. So the second largest trade deficit, something like that, whatever it is, lots of people hold sterling and we still have a very large import deficit like you do except we don't have the reserve currency to back it up gotcha so we had done a lot of studies on the french revolution and the squabbles <laughs> between the french and the british yeah and the triangulation with the uk and then the spaniards and insanity with the sugarcane trade in haiti mm -hmm. that had a tremendous impact on the shape of world events even to this day. Mm -hmm. And there's a real case study here to understanding that even then, the real issue wasn't about currency. It was really about real resources. Yeah. Haiti had the real resources. They just didn't have the military might, the ability for that island to serve the colonial outposts throughout the US, the Central American, the island and the South American outposts from these colonial nations. That was really the hub of everything down there in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you the real value, the real thing that everyone is after is the real resources. And with the UK being an island nation in the current form, what is the leverage of the UK government in terms of their import-oriented strategy? given that they are not the primary world reserve currency, I don't think that really necessarily matters. No, no. This is the common narrative that we frequently hear. How is it that the UK, which has been reduced, like you said, to an island yep. that is heavily dependent on imports, how is it that they're able to survive on that without being the world reserve currency? Well, we're living on past glories. We do have the city of London, which is important because it's, in the middle of the world's time zones and provides quite a lot of the shipping insurance across the world still. So the rump of the British Empire is operated within a very small part of the city of London. You can literally walk around it. It's even smaller than Wall Street. 
And that's where if you want shipping done, you can wander around various places. You can get it all done in next to no time. That's the great advantage of it is that it's all set up. It's all there. It all works and everybody tends to use it. And they carry on using it largely through inertia in the same way that people use the US dollar to pay for things because, well, it works. And why bother inventing anything new? The London shipping insurance market is very similar. So that's very important. But we are in a bit of a pickle because we are not food independent and we are not energy independent. And that's come home to roost this winter because we've had policies that have relied upon the worldwide energy market to obtain the energy that's required to operate the United Kingdom. We're now in a situation where we haven't got enough and we can't get hold of it. And it's become very expensive. So much so that the Hayekian government has had to introduce an energy price cap in the UK to stop inflation getting completely out of control. Now that might stop it on that side, but it still doesn't tell anybody where they're actually going to get the extra ships full of liquefied natural gas from. There is a worldwide shortage of it. And whether we'll be able to get through the winter with enough electricity produced or keeping the houses warm is still an open question at this particular point in time. And all the infighting within the current government isn't really getting us to the point where we can answer that. What are the impacts of the destruction of the Nord Stream 2 and the lack of production of Russian fuels? Was that a primary source of energy for you or were you getting it through other means? No, it was next to nothing. It's had very little impact on us. It's had far greater impact on Europe. But of course, they then start asking for the LNG that we need. They don't have the terminals to offload it. We have the terminals within the UK to offload the LNG. That's liquefied natural gas for anybody who prefers the long version. So we've had this strange situation over the summer where we've been offloading the gas in the UK, shipping it to our gas power stations, running the power stations longer than normal, and then exporting the power to the continent because they don't have the gas from Russia to power their power station. So it's an unholy mess that is being made worse because everything's market-based. And of course, as you know, once you don't have excess supply in markets, then everybody starts doing hoarding and price gouging, making a killing. And that's what's happening in the gas markets over here. So going back to Brexit, a lot of people made it out to be that these working class were just a bunch of racists. <laughs> yeah. I listen to Bill Mitchell quite frequently, and Bill has a very different take on that being Aussie. And I know that he's tied into a lot of things that happen over there with Gower. But from your perspective as a person living, it seems to me like Brexit on many levels was a rejection of neoliberalism. It was very well considered, I thought, certainly within the working class that I consider myself to be part of, that we want to make our own decisions and not be ruled over by technocrats. That was the general sense of it. It was a reassertion of the crown in parliament system that we have and that we would prefer that the decisions were made there and not elsewhere. And it was essentially a recovery of the country, a form of patriotism that will allow us to do our own thing and go our own way. And as you can see, it's still causing a split within the country with those people who want to go towards a global regime where everything is decided by experts from on high versus those people who would prefer things to bubble up from below and be decided within their own parliament. It's not a resolved matter by any stretch of the imagination. It's not really been used particularly to improve anything yet. 
And that's sort of sad because it could, the UK in particular is, I would consider to be one of the most MMT ready, if you like, mm. countries in the world. We have our own central bank. We own it and control it completely. We've got an overdraft facility that's fully usable by the government whenever they feel like they want to use it. Sat there and everybody doesn't want to talk about it. We never borrow from the markets at all. Every single penny the government ever spends in the UK is always borrowed from the Bank of England every day. And then it is reversed out into the market at a higher interest rate. Why? Don't know. There we go. <laughs> we also have, strange enough, something that's remarkably close to a job guarantee. If we could just get the wage rate up to something sensible and allow people to choose to go on it. And of course, we've got a universal healthcare system. So we've got all the bases covered. It's so frustratingly close. It just needs a bit of a nudge in the right direction. In two or three little directions and we're there. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. That's amazing to me because one of the things as an American looking through history, UK seems to be rich with tradition, cultural norms that people take very seriously. Yes. Yeah. That is just very much a part of who they are. The idea of change, of progress, means something very different in a country that has been around for a very long time. Yes. And has roots and holidays from 700 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the United States, as far as a colonized country, because I do understand the indigenous people probably resent us talking about this being a young country. But within the space of the time frame of the current state of the United States, we still struggle with an identity at times, even though I think our identity is quite clear. It is the neoliberal factory of the world. <laughs> the UK seems like a rather conservative place in the sense that it likes its traditions and national borders. And some of these things are concepts that in the United States mean different things. Yes. And so when we talk about nationalism in the United States, it's got a very racist connotation to it. Anti-immigrant bend. Yes. It's got a harshness to it. Yeah, that's right. We just don't have that over here, Steve, at all. This country is incredibly tolerant. It is a country that has accepted people coming in from the outside for thousands of years. And they've come from all over the place. And people tend not to resent incomers as long as there aren't too many of them too fast. 
it's the rate at which people come in that, that people tend to complain about. In other words, we don't have enough housing for people who actually live here, so why are we bringing more people in? We don't have the space for them. We don't have enough food to feed the people who are already here. So the reactions to immigration are entirely rational based upon the fact that it's a relatively small island with a very dense population centre in the southeast where all the economic activity has been concentrated. It's not been spread around the country properly. So we end up with a situation where we have a desire for people to come in, but only at a relatively slow rate. And I don't think it's uncontroversial. I seem to remember Bernie Sanders saying that immigration is a Koch brothers plot to reduce the wages of the working class. So I wouldn't consider it to be a controversial position. We don't have a particularly large racism problem in this country. The current cabinet is all shades and types of people, and nobody cares particularly. That's not to say that there aren't people out there, but it's considered to be relatively uncouth. With that in mind, given that Truss is of the Tories, and the Tories are the Conservative Party in the UK, yes, they remind me, ironically, far more of the Democrats in the US, Yeah, because we don't really have a left party. No, you destroyed your Socialist Party in the First World War. <laughs> yes, we sure did. And we've been suffering ever since. Yeah. When the Tories are in charge, what does that substantively mean to someone in the UK? What can you expect? It's odd. The Conservatives like to be in power. And they tend to morph slightly. I suppose the one central point that the Tories seem to agree on is their veneration of the market as a god. And this idea that the market is central to everything. That the whole issue over the last month and a bit has been to do with this idea that the Tories worship the market like a god. And therefore, if the market says something, it must be appeased and offerings must be given up to it in that strange way that those sort of people think. So what we would consider from a rational MMT lens point of view, where the gilt markets, the bond markets in the UK, the government bond markets, the yields went up when the previous chancellor made his announcements. And that was perfectly irrational because they didn't actually believe that what they'd said they were going to do all summer, they were actually going to do. And when he actually stood up in Parliament and said, yep, yeah, we're definitely going to do it, they went, oh dear, we seem to have mispriced guilt. The rate of interest is going to have to be much higher. And so that's what happened. And then everything else effectively cascaded from that. So with trust and power, what do you expect to happen in the UK? Well, given the way the Tory party is, there's going to be, as far as I can see, an internecine war within the Tory party because they're split two or possibly three ways between those people who are still pining for the EU and globalism and those who want a more monetary free market institute of economic affairs, which is the right-wing think tank over here, that laugh a curve type ideology. And there's a big bun fight going on between those two within the Tory party at the moment that's ripping them apart. So I'm not actually sure whether very much forward progress will be made any more than there's been over the last three years. And obviously, we've had the pandemic, but even once we got the pandemic out of the way, there didn't appear to be very much in the way of any consensus behind doing anything. So I suspect that what we're actually going to see is two years of not a lot. 
before we actually end up with the next election. You said that the party itself will elect the PM. Yeah. And there's a lot of conversation that trust may not be around very long. The trustonomics was basically dead on arrival. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. So with that in mind, what kind of economics do you expect? Are you expecting austerity to sweep the land? Or are you expecting any kind of bold visionary changes? Or are you considering this just largely business as usual? I suspect it'll be very much business as usual. Nothing to see here. Oh, look, a squirrel type economics. The prime minister has said there'll be no spending cuts. Now, of course, she said there were going to be tax cuts last week. So who knows whether she'll change her mind by next week. But I don't think there's a majority within the Tory party to enact much in the way of spending cuts. I don't think there's a majority within the Tory party to enact much in the way of tax cuts either, which is why they've rolled back two that they've proposed. The higher rate tax cut was scrapped last week. And today they've reversed the corporation tax. It wasn't so much a cut as they put it back to what it was to start with, and then they've reinstated it again now. So it's going to go up from 19% to 25%, as far as I can tell. They have reversed the individual tax rises that were put in, and I expect those to go through because the manifesto on which the party was elected said they wouldn't raise those. So putting those back to what they were at the start of the parliament, I think that will probably get through. But yeah, each measure is going to have to be judged on its own merits as to whether it's actually even going to get a vote to get through Parliament or not. So there's a lot of politicking to go on. I can't see any move to fixing the actual fundamental problems that we have. I don't even know that anybody's talking about it. Fundamentally, the UK is now a poorer country than it was three years ago because the pandemic has taken a lot out of us and our supply side has been damaged much as it has across the rest of the world. And that causes a real loss. And nobody is even sitting down and talking about where that real loss is going to be allocated across the population and who's going to have to stand it. It's just every single interest group saying, not me. But it's got to go somewhere and somehow. And what saddens me as somebody's an MMT, you're sitting there going, we need to talk about the real loss and how we're going to allocate it. Nobody even wants to have that discussion. They want to talk about pounds and numbers, spreadsheets. They never ever want to talk about the actual real things like the gas. We haven't got enough, so who gets to have less? It's both sad and crazy at the same time. Indeed. With the war going on with Ukraine and Russia and the impacts on the EU and seeing how OPEC has once again fallen into some pretty crummy business. <laughs> say the least. Very tactful. Very tactful. <laughs> if the United States, who is supposedly the big bully, can't make a change there, how does that impact UK? Where do you expect to get additional energy from? We've got a great pipeline, but nothing in the ground at present. Nuclear has got a lot of different negatives and it's got some very good positives but overall yeah. there's volatility there oh we've got rolls-royce nuclear power quite literally rolls-royce nuclear power capability here <laughs> that's the company that makes them so <laughs> <laughs> i never knew that yeah it's the rolls-royce make nuclear power plants for submarines 
And the general idea over here is to try and use that technology to actually provide nuclear power across the country using what's called small modular reactors. So yes, we do have Rolls-Royce nuclear power capability. You just need to get that stuff out there and out somewhere. It's a great idea because if you use essentially what are submarine nuclear power plants and you scale them up, then when they've reached the end of their life, you can pick them up and move them somewhere else. It's quite a clever system. Whether it'll actually get past regulators or past the anti-nuclear mob, I don't know. But I'm excited about all that sort of power stuff. Electric cars and things like that. Wind turbines and wind farms and offshore stuff. Everything's got a silver lining. And to me, the silver lining of OPEC overplaying its hand right here is with a forward-thinking nation, with bright people looking at the future that are not just in it for the money. Yeah. The opportunity is here mm. to make some bold changes to get away from OPEC having that kind of stranglehold on the world. Yeah, it is very much like that. I mean, the UK ideas are quite bold. As usual with the UK, we have lots of bold ideas and then nobody ever stumps the buddy up to make them happen. But the idea, as far as I can tell, is to put such a massive amount of capacity within the United Kingdom that the wind will always be blowing somewhere and we will always be able to generate sufficient power for the country, regardless of the atmospheric conditions. And the way that we'll deal with the excess is to export it to the continent. So therefore, we'll become a very large energy exporter, whereas at the moment, we're obviously a fairly large energy importer. So that was the vision. And I think it's a very grand vision and certainly one that's got an awful lot to be said for it. If we can have three times installed capacity of wind, then almost certainly we'll be able to maintain the country in electricity without actually needing storage so much. And that, uh, I think, is a great idea. The pipeline is huge and hopefully it will all get built. And if we can throw a few Rolls-Royce nuclear reactors in there as well, that'd be even better. So it can actually be a genuine energy exporter to the rest of Europe. If you're an island nation with loads of windy seas around you, they need to be made use of. So the EU is going through some stuff because of their dependence on Russian oil. Yeah. Russian gas primarily. It's the gas that's the problem, less oil. Yes. Germany is usually the de facto king of the EU, and even they're struggling. Mm -hmm. This seems like, of all the things that we've experienced, resource wars are nothing new. Mm -hmm. That has been since the dawn of time, whether it was going after bronze. <laughs> yeah. What is the relationship between the UK and the EU in terms of cooperation and a shared sense of what's happening? Yeah, it's very much trading partners in the same way as we see the US. We don't want to be part of the US, but we love selling them stuff. You know, the same with us. So it's seen like that, I think, largely. Obviously, there are people who would prefer us to be inside the EU, but it's seen as a trading relationship. There, there are thorns within that particular arrangement, but I don't see it as ever really breaking down. There's just a lot of saber rattling going on between various people who perhaps ought to keep their mouth shut more often. <laughs> but yeah, there's not really a big problem selling stuff to the EU, and there's not really a big problem with importing anything from the EU. And certainly, as far as energy is concerned, they ain't got a lot of choice at the moment because they haven't got enough power stations. So we do have a problem across the whole of Europe in terms of providing sufficient independence. It's something I've been thinking of just in terms of MMT as well, is 
sort of systemic autarky, which is this idea that a nation needs to be able to be self-sufficient, but not necessarily self-sufficient within itself, but any external stuff that it brings in, it needs to have sufficient supply, different areas of supply, different sources of supply to cover itself in case one or many of those sources folds. If Germany had done that with Russia, it wouldn't be in this situation. It would have a second supply of gas that would have been sufficient to power the nation. The problem you've got with neoliberalism and globalism and the one world idea is that it's all based around the idea of efficiency, economic efficiency, extracting as much cash out of the system as possible, rather than resilience, the ability to be able to withstand shocks and continue functioning regardless. And in nature, you get this trade-off between efficiency and resilience. Anything that's too efficient or anything that's too resilient tends to get eliminated and there needs to be that happy medium in the middle. Neoliberalism just goes straight to efficiency, as far as I can say, because they can always socialize the losses. We see that every time there's a bailout. Fadal Kaboob, who has frequently been on this program and everybody knows him in the MMT space, mm-hmm. Fadal talks frequently about sovereignty of energy, sovereignty of food, yeah, and value-added products, not just the base products. Yeah. Given that the UK is a small island and is suffering in some respects due to the energy shortage, what kinds of imports does the UK depend upon and what is its main export? The main export is city finance and insurance. That's what we shift the most of, it's services is what we sell the most of. On top of that, we've still got quite a big production and manufacturing system, although that tends to be largely passed through, I should think. So you bring components in on the import side, assemble them, and then ship them out again, particularly in cars and machinery and things along those lines. So we've by no means not got a material economy, but the service economy is definitely the biggie. So you've got finances one, and then you've got advertising, PR, and marketing as another fairly sizable worldwide exports. On the import side, we are dependent upon energy and we are dependent upon food imports. And obviously we import a lot of cars, and things along those lines, but our entire import structure isn't all needed imports. There's quite a lot of discretionary on there. And so we're only price takers in the energy and food areas, really. The other stuff is discretionary where we shouldn't be price takers. So a lot of the neoliberal theories of, well, your currency has gone down, therefore the price of everything is going to go up. It's like, how does the price of things go up when the item's discretionary? Uh-huh. Isn't that you have to put your price down if you want to sell it? Otherwise, it's not a discretionary item, is it? You always get this. As soon as you've defeated them on every other single item, the next thing they always come up with is currency crisis. So half my battle whenever I'm talking to anybody is trying to explain to them how floating exchange rates work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. There's always this idea, isn't there, that if your exchange rate goes down, the price of things in your country is going to go up. Well, why won't the price what they're getting go down? Why does it have to be that way? Why are we always price takers? What's the idea behind that? They could never explain it. Because as soon as you force them to look at it from the other side, well, they need to sell their tomatoes, don't they? Where else are they going to sell? Then at that point in time, their arguments all fall apart. It's all a story. It's all a game to try and frighten people into a way of thinking. Could usually defeat a one currency crisis like you can on everything else, government borrowing and all that sort of stuff. It's ever so entertaining. Yes. <laughs> well, that brings me to two last points that I want to bring up before we close out. Okay. I follow a lot of Brits on Twitter and not just regular rank and file activists, but 
a lot of the actual economists and the folks that are considered left very strongly remind me of neoliberals. Because they are. (laughs) (laughs) What we have, you see, is we've got this wonderful thing called the Oxford degree on philosophy, politics, and economics, you see. And what happens is when they graduate from that, there's a sorting hat and it just puts them in either the Labour Party or the Tory Party, depending upon what the sorting hat thinks. They're all exactly the same. They're all the same graduates. They're all the same set of people. The economists are like that too. They just get a sorted out when they get the degree, I swear to God. <laughs> I've talked with Karen Van Sweden, Malcolm Revel, and what is their take on Scottish independence and Without Scottish independence, what is their take on the economics of Ireland and Scotland? How does that part of this play out? Yeah, this is the peculiar construction of the UK that's just happens to have come around over the centuries. The union of England, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland is a peculiar construct. There is no Scotland, technically speaking. There is only one kingdom of Great Britain. Northern Ireland's sort of separate-ish. It has its own separate exchequer, but not really. Scotland has its own sort of separate legal system, but it's mostly very similar to the English one. So the whole thing's an absolute mess, but that's what you get with organic growth. (laughs) So yeah, I would say they're similar to states in the US-ish, in that they have a separate parliament, but they don't have a separate currency. They only get to legislate over certain things, not everything. And so it's more like a classic local government arrangement than separate countries. They don't really have as much flexibility as the separate EU countries do. It's just a statewide local government system where they're now responsible for doing the bins and some other council area within England is responsible for doing the bins there. It is very much a local government arrangement, I think. I think it can be dressed up as being rather more than what it is. Ah. With that, what I want to do is give you the last word. Oh, God. What do we want to know as we walk away from this with trusts coming in and anything else that you feel is necessary to mention? Well, from my perspective, what's happening in the UK at present is very important for MMTers to pay attention to, the politics in particular. It's the politics that matters. It's pretty clear that the previous chancellor didn't do the politics necessary to cover off what he was planning to do. There was a market reaction, inverted commas, that frightened the horses within the Tory party. So if we're laying the ground for anything that we want to do, we need to be absolutely clear. We give the script to the legislators to say, this is what will happen and this is how we're going to counter it. He really should have put the changes within the Bank of England up front to head off what the market was going to do. He should have effectively told the debt management office to only issue gilts at a set yield rather than running what's called the full funding rule, which is the thing that means that we have to sell as many bonds as the government spends. That we should just suspend that and say, no, we're only going to issue these things at 2%, say. And if you don't like them, you can keep your bank reserves. So yes, MMTers need to realise this is what's going to happen if we make the changes that we've got in mind. And you need to make sure you've got your political groundwork covered and that the market will react. You need to have a mechanism by which you can shut it down and silence it, much as the Japanese has done, as you mentioned, as we started this podcast. 
Very good. And Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. This is our first talk. It is. It is. How have you managed to do that? We've been at this for years, Steve. How long have you been doing this now? Well, I've been doing RP overall for seven, eight, but this podcast has been alive and well now for three years. Three years, crikey. Yeah. Seven or eight years since we first talked. Yeah. So we're going to need to make sure we bring you back again. And I'm really grateful to make this connection. I hope I can talk to folks like Richard Ty. You guys, Gims, I have never been more proud. I remember before it came into being that we were doing this stuff before Gims was around yet. And that whole thing was so well organized. They've done impressive work. Deborah and the rest of you, please know I'm absolutely thrilled with your work. I really appreciate everything you've done. And Neil, it has been an absolute pleasure. So with that, my name's Steve Grumman. I'm the host of Macro and Cheese. My guest is Neil Wilson of the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies. It's great to be fellow travelers in this MMT world. So thank you so much for joining me today, Neil. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. You got it. Have a great day, everybody. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive. I want the truth!